Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, as always, is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, man. How are you? I'm good. Good. I'm about to be sad because we're in the midst of a sad miniseries that we have chosen to cover. I need to stop laughing right now because it's <laughs> it's just it's, it's depressing. I like this series, but I, I do too. it's 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 very much and I think we joked a little bit either offline or in another episode about how we'd probably need to cover something that's a little bit lighter or at least have shows that offset it. So I think for you it's cheers. So whenever <laughs> right. like, <laughs> it was and I finally finished it. So I, okay. I, I'm sort of I'm in between shows right now. I don't know what to gotcha. start up next. Sometimes you need a little uh pick me up after a show like this. It, yeah. It's heavy. It is. There's something wrong it with is. the Earth's you know, gravitational pull in this show. <laughs> it's heavy. Run for it, Marty! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, I will say this. Even though it's a lot, it's very informative, educational, and it's made me very curious to learn more about nuclear power plants here at home <laughs> in the U.S. And I mentioned this to you offline. I found a site that has a map of all of the U.S. you know nuclear power plants, where they are, sort of the safe radius that you should be at if something were to happen at one of them. I think it's like it's like a ten mile radius for immediate evacuation, then fifty for it affecting food. And as as they talk about in this episode, you know it can affect the water supply or crops or animals. So there used to be one called the Indian Point nuclear power facility in Westchester County, just north of New York City. But I found out that just last year, it permanently shut down. And it used to supply 25% of the power for all of New York, all five boroughs, this one oh, okay. nuclear power plant. And for some reason, I'm not sure why, I don't know the full reasoning behind its uh, shutdown, but it's currently in the process of being completely dismantled. And I don't know what they're going to turn it into. But maybe some a mini high, mall end, or something high end condominiums. <laughs> high end condos, right? Yeah. I have no idea. But come get radioactive. Now we're safe from any nuclear fallout in New York City because that was the only plant that was within a 50 mile radius of New York City. We found that you're fine where you are. There's one yeah. in northern Arkansas, but not close enough yeah. to Little Rock. Yeah, we're good. Um, I was so yeah. grateful to be able to to see that. And then I did a little bit of quick searching on what type of nuclear power plant it was. It was a right. water plant, not a wa- I don't know how they describe it, but essentially it's hydro powered yeah. by powered by water, where water right. is used. I think Chernobyl was that way too, but I um, I haven't done enough like research to determine if that that's the case. Well, and like I said, any good show like this will make me want to Google things and learn more. And that's what I think is really great about this is that it really is opening my eyes to a whole subject that I really didn't know that much about. And it made me kind of do a little research as to like what would cause something like this. And it turns out that it really comes down to power. If you don't have electricity to cool the reactor to keep pumping water and cool the reactor, that's when you have a meltdown. And that's what happened 11 years ago in Fukushima when they had that 
giant tsunami that caused the Fukushima meltdown. The issue was that all the backup generators, everything went offline. So they had no power to cool the reactor. And that's really the biggest threat that the U.S. would face as well as if there was a like EMP or a solar flare that would knock out all power, including backup generators. That's how you would have a meltdown. There's so many backups, but something like that that would knock out all power of any kind would be, you know, make every single nuclear power plant essentially like a ticking bomb. You know, so right. It's probably. Good thing that they're starting to retire some of these <laughs> over time. I don't know what the yeah. next stage of electricity will be and where it will come from, but there's clearly the potential for accidents to occur, as as we're seeing with this show. Yeah, I think that the next two sources are going to be from Amazon and Elon Musk, maybe as a co-op <laughs> or something. But yeah, <laughs> since apparently in this day and age, they kind of own a lot of the things that we <laughs> value, which is right, social media right. and junk or stuff that we can get shipped to us in anything two days everything yeah. everything <laughs> and i'll just say i'm like i'm not a prepper or anything but i do like to be prepared for emergencies kind of be aware of things like they say in gi joe knowing is half the battle right <laughs> so i just like to have a general understanding of like what what do you do in a situation where do you go mm-hmm. what do you pack if you need to evacuate that kind of thing right so well let's get into the episode all right there's a handful of like big ideas that I pulled from from this in terms of like what I felt like it was trying to do. One, we really start to get more of the questions asking what caused it. And that was toward the end of the episode. I thought that was something that was I'd forgotten or I, that wasn't at the forefront of my mind. But as they started addressing it, that was something that I started actively thinking about, okay, what did cause this? What right. was the thing? Was there a conspiracy? And as we get closer to the end of the episode, we sort of find out that that might be the case, but we're left sort of in limbo. Another kind of idea that I think the episode wrestles with is the consequences of what has happened and that they're outweighed by this new normal. So some examples being like Vasily's wife visiting him and being too close to him or the workers who dig the tunnel and expose themselves literally to the elements (laughs) being butt naked. Uh, Legasov and Sherbina discussing the casual exposure to the radiation. This episode really brings to light this idea that there's no protection for the people that are involved. It's just about levels of exposure at this point. Like it's not, if you're going to get hit with radiation, it's how much and what can you do? And I got this whole feeling, Adam, as I was watching the episode of how in the world do you reconcile that as a human being, not just as a human being, but as someone who is of some level of importance in this whole event, whether you're a scientist, whether you're a politician, whether you're a fireman, all these things that sort of go into what this episode is exploring, which is, can you live with this? Do you recognize the danger? I don't know if this surprised me, but I was kind of taken aback at the somewhat nonchalantness of how people were dealing with it, particularly with Sherbina and with Legasov where they're clearly not calm necessarily. It's not like they're like, cool, it's whatever, it's radiation, it's fine. But they're not freaking out. And I think that's important. I think it's a good thing. But I'm thinking as a person, why would they not be freaking out even more? Because they're constantly being exposed to all this. And so I was left sort of in a place of tension of like, 
are they just accepting their fate? Are all these people accepting their fate? Are they finding value in the short term as opposed to the long term? Is it ignorance? And so I just kind of felt all that in this episode of how do people deal with what is considered this new normal, this radiation that will never go away in their lifetime? And how do you reconcile that? Yeah, I think they're all in it now. Whether they like it or not, they were pulled into this situation and they are almost too focused on just the task at hand, I think, to really grapple the long-term consequences, at least for, obviously, the firemen and the workers, all of them are dealing with it right now. But everyone else who's kind of has, has a lower exposure, less you know, a lesser amount of radiation, they're not going to feel anything right away. You know, it's going to be months, years more before they really have any. And they talk about this. They go into this, how it's going to take shape in the form of a cancer or some other health issue later on in, in their lives. And they're already older men, so it's not like it's going to cut their life significantly shorter, but it's, it's, it's a death sentence, you know, and they know that. But they're also just so focused, I think, in this episode, you mentioned there's sort of two things happening. One is there in the beginning, the first half, they're really focused on just dealing with preventing a bigger catastrophe from occurring. And yeah. once that's sort of taken care of, then they can kind of focus on the next, like the long war, uh, you know, the kind of what they have to do over the next year. The fallout. Yeah. yeah the fallout to, of everything. To, to ensure that they minimize casualties as much as possible. But first and foremost, they had to ensure there wasn't a complete explosion of this facility that would, would wreak havoc on all of uh, Eastern Europe, really. Then they do succeed. You know, as in the very beginning, they, in a sort of unceremonious <laughs> celebration, they, they achieve that goal. And that's great. But there's also another thought, problem, right? There, there's the issue of the core melting through the concrete slab underneath as well. So there's always like one more potential problem <laughs> that they're dealing with in this, in this episode. Well, and I think when you watch that opening sequence, which was just fantastic, what a great way to end one episode and begin another. I mean, this was a series yeah. that came on weekly. So there really was a cliffhanger that you were thinking, what's going to happen if you didn't know the events? Right. I thought the pump flashlights were kind of cool. I didn't know that those existed where you would actually like, oh, like yeah. almost like you're uh, like you're pumping up your shoes back in the 80s, you know, the, the Reebok right. pumps. And, you know, I have a, a similar crank emergency radio. Yeah. Uh, where it's really just like you're powering it by human sweat, essentially, just your muscle <laughs> <By> labor. <laughs> yeah, by labor is keeping it functioning. I, I'm assuming the same basic principle, you know, by yeah. squeezing it, pumping it, it keeps it lit. Not sure why but they couldn't give them batteries, but who knows? Maybe they would have been radioactive. Oh, <laughs> yeah, know. maybe. Yeah. But I, you alluded to something really interesting, which is when they come out, you see this really kind of unceremonious victory. They right. come out, they did it. They're popping champagne, but the music is still ominous. The music is not indicating the problem is solved. And you have this conversation right before with Legasov and uh, Sherbina, where Sherbina says, you know, is there a possibility they won't make it? And he's like, yeah. I mean, just so nonchalant, just so direct, so terse about it. And I yeah. think that the episode sets the tone for this idea that I'm, you know, I continue to wrestle with, which is how do you deal with this? You accept it. You accept the fact that this is now what it is. And so we have to solve the problems at hand as they come up. And I think that the way the episode handles it is really nice. It doesn't feel like you're never getting a solution. Like, But the victory is short-lived. So right. I think it's appropriate that you have this small group who are 
popping champagne with ominous music intermixed as a means to say that this isn't a victory in the long run. This is this is a stopper, and it is good. It could have been a far worse. But I think that that scene and the tone of it reflects the attitudes of both Shabina and Legasov in that they know that this is one problem among a number that need to get solved in order to get to the finish line, which I don't know if they know what that finish line is. No, no. And, and again, they didn't ask to be assigned to this, but now that they're in it, if they don't do it, who else will? What would happen? It's almost like they are the best chance anybody has because they've been in it from the beginning. If they were replaced suddenly with some new people, who's to say how things would have gone? And I think they know that. I think they realize that they've already been exposed. They're in it. They know all the players. They know what's going on. So they don't even have time. I mean, they do. We get, as the audience, a few nice, quiet moments where they talk to each other about this predicament that they're in and so on. But for the most part, they're so focused on the task at hand, whatever the next issue is, that I don't think they have a lot of time to really contemplate the kind of long-term repercussions for themselves personally. They're really focused on that bigger picture. And of course, these are members of the Soviet party, so they are thinking more about the patriotism and their duty. And I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, when I look at that scene and I see the scene shortly after between Ligasov and, and Sherbina, that tension that we saw in the second episode continues to kind of be elevated. What I like about these two characters is how they are polar opposites. They're coming from two different worlds, scientist versus politician, and yet they're forced to work together because they both right. have answers. Or pull resources what, you know, right. that they need. You know, Each of them has access to different resources or whether that be people or materials, they come from different worlds. They know where to get help. That scene where I guess the choppers are flying overhead because I think they're still dumping dust sand. and sand and, yeah. and, uh, and boron or borax or some bore thing on Borat. Borat, yeah. They're pumping Borat over. Set, <laughs> Just which, stuffing I mean, hundreds of Sasha Baron Cohen's on top of <laughs> That'll it. stop any nuclear meltdown right there. <laughs> 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 Which it, it's a remi- it's a reminder to me that that's another thing that needs to get taken care of. The fire is still going, so th- right. there's just like there are literally all these fires to put out, and right. <laughs> there are fires, and there's other things. But in the midst of that, you have this great moment with Legasov, who is criticizing that decision that the evac zone should be thirty kilometers when it should be right. much larger, and he says point blank, "Who decided this?" And Shabina's like, "I don't know." like somebody above my pay grade. But he goes back to that whole idea. I don't know if it was said in episode one, but he sort of hints back to the fact that scientists aren't taken seriously or in that first, I guess it was in the first episode where the scientists are like, yeah, you guys don't, you don't do anything. You sit in your lab all day and you don't actually solve problems. A different conversation, but this thing that he says alludes to it. He said, maybe I've spent too much time in my lab, or maybe I'm just stupid. And then he says, is this how it works? An uninformed, arbitrary decision made by some career party man? So we're getting the first set of real pushback on the politician's side. The, The politics side of this thing is damaging to what's going on here. And Sherbina says, I'm a party man. Watch your mouth, essentially. Yeah. So- what I like about that scene is that we get these two guys that are posturing their positions, but not out of pride for what they do, but about about the perceived level of importance 
I think that Legasov has a legit gripe. Who came up with this 30-kilometer radius? This is clearly right. not big enough. And at the same time, Sherbin is like, I don't know, and I can't give you the answers, but don't blame it on the party. Like It's not just these guys' fault. And I, I think it's really important to see that Sherbina wants to have the right answers, but he also knows that he doesn't have all the answers. And I thought there was some really great tension showing the importance that those two place on their own positions in the situation. Yeah, definitely. And I think clearly somebody above him or a group of people made this arbitrary decision. And it was all, I'm sure, designed to reduce panic and fear and make sure that it doesn't look to the outside world like this is as big of an issue as it really is. So they're clearly doing sort of damage control from a PR standpoint, as well as literal damage control. But the people who are actually doing the damage control don't care about the sort of perception aspect because that's uh, clearly is not important to any of the scientists. Yeah. One of the other things that I latched onto was this sort of subplot with Vasily's wife who goes to the hospital. She is unaware of what she's walking into the radiation and how exposed he was to it. Mm -hmm. She pays, she pays off the triage nurse to go see him She gets asked the question, you're not pregnant, are you? She totally is. Don't touch him. She totally does. Stay behind the plastic. And she totally doesn't. I can absolutely understand her point of view that the love that she has for her husband supersedes any kind of medical precaution. So it got me asking the question that I alluded to earlier, uh, particularly with her, if she knew the consequences of what she was doing and the exposure that she was making, which she didn't, could she consciously live with that? I almost wonder, was it worth it to see and be a re- be close to her husband as he was essentially disintegrating over the course of three or four mm-hmm. days, knowing that, according to the doctors, she was exposing herself to high levels of radiation? I'd like to think that that didn't matter, but I think it's partly because of the fact that she didn't know what she didn't know. And so right. it was really hard to watch that because we knew we know now in the present day that what she's doing is highly dangerous, but there's something really powerful about a love relationship that someone has for someone else where even in his gross estate, which by the way, I just want to throw some love to the makeup department in this episode, mm-hmm. the way in which they depict these men, not just Vasily, but uh, these other men that... Um, that uh, the firefighters com- and yeah, yeah, the firefighters, the scientists, Komuk, you know, she's talking to them to have someone see her husband that way in his last moments and still mm-hmm. want to hold his hand. There's something pretty amazing about that. And so I kind of came to the conclusion that she was like, I don't care what I'm being exposed to. I don't care what it's doing for me. It, it just right. kind of reinforces this idea of the short-term importance to an individual versus the long-term consequences. I think that's kind of a theme that's running throughout this episode, not only with her, but also with Ligasov and Sherbina as they're making decisions, these right. these guys that are in the uh, with the water, yeah. really sort of accepting the fact that the short-term benefit is worth right. the, the task cost. at hand or, yes. or situation at hand supersedes the long-term repercussions. I think that's how people live their lives. If you think about it, lots of people smoke, drink excessively, do drugs, do promiscuous things that are all bad for them. 
in everyday life because they don't think about or don't care how that might affect them later in life or what the ramifications of those actions might be. Speeding, driving recklessly, all of those things. You could totally die in a car accident. It happens all the time, yet doesn't stop people from, from driving fast because they don't think it'll happen to them. So I think human beings tend to sort of live their lives in the moment and not think too much about the ramifications of, of those actions, especially in a situation like this, where it really is kind of life and death. And she even mentions, I just don't want my husband to be alone when he dies, you know, and I can yeah. kind of see yeah. that, you know, I can say, I, I get it. And, and like you said, maybe she doesn't fully understand. I mean, she should, but maybe she doesn't fully understand how this exposure will affect her later on. Maybe she thinks, well, I'm in Moscow now. I'm nowhere near that disaster. So how is this going to hurt me? So maybe they don't know that. Maybe they didn't educate the people at this time as to the fact that, no, no, these people are literally radioactive. And by being near them, you are becoming essentially infected by that as well. And they even, the filmmakers, I think, do a great job when the nurse says, don't touch him. And then we see this moment where she embraces him and it's in slow motion and the music you feel the sense that like right now with them, they're embracing, they're touching each other, that she's basically getting infected as well. That like, it's like, yes, it's a happy moment and that they're reunited, but it's also this horrible sort of transference of death, essentially. Now, I don't know if this, if she dies or if her unborn child eventually survives or has any problems, maybe we'll find out, but it's clearly something that she decided to ignore if she did know it. And it's funny because all the nurses are like, yeah, don't go past the plastic, don't touch. And yet no one's watching her. She's just like roaming the halls for no accountability. Days. No accountability, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they had their hands full. Those nurses had a lot of dying patients to tend to. And and again, this is probably not a type of situation that any of them have ever had to deal with. If you think about it, this didn't happen before. You knew about radiation poisoning, but to the degree that they were exposed probably had never happened to any of these nurses' careers. Yeah, I mean, when I when I watch those nurses do what they're doing, I look at all of these characters that are deliberately exposing themselves to this danger. And there's this real sense of altruism that I think exists. It's on display in pockets throughout this episode. From the very beginning, we get the three guys, you know, with the water. We see the nurses who are constantly, you know, doing what they need to do, taking it very seriously. And then we get to the coal miners who mm-hmm. are essentially recruited by the minister of coal. <laughs> that scene was hilariously. So it's a coveted just, position. <laughs> it, apparently it is. And uh, you get to wear a suit <laughs> as opposed yeah. to being covered in coal. But there's this real sense of loyalty to something. Mm-hmm. And I think with those three sets of people, I asked myself, what is your dedication to? What is your motivation for, quote, doing good? You know, yeah. Cole Foreman, at one point in his nude glory, comes up to, <laughs> comes up to Sherbina and he asked the question, hey, are my men going to be taken care of after this? Yeah. Sherbina, I think, is the one who says, I don't know. Yeah. Which I appreciate. I appreciate the honesty because earlier in that, in the episode, Ligasov is sort of wrestling with the fact that he can't lie to these people. Right. I just, I can't do that. I can't lie. 
And Sharbina's like, don't, because these guys, they see clearly in the dark, which is, I think is very much right. a you know, metaphorical phrase that they, they see through this. And he right. does. The, the, the foreman is like, he looks at the mask. He's like, if these worked, you'd be wearing them, those types of things. And yeah. um, we'll get started right away because I want them to be exposed to as little as possible. But watching how he continues to do the work, he doesn't tell his men, guys, it's not worth it. Let's get out of here. Let's head for the hills. I don't know what's motivating them, if it's political, if it's you're going to be executed if you don't. I mean, there was the scene earlier where they get recruited by the ministry, Mm -hmm. uh, the minister of Cole, and he basically says, you're coming with me. And they're like, why? What what do we need to know? And he's like, I didn't ask, so it has to do with Chernobyl. You need to do this. But even then, I don't feel like they were at a point where they were feeling threatened, or if they were, they could stand up for it. I think he says something like, you know, if you don't tell us everything, go ahead and shoot us. Yeah. He's like, well, uh, yeah, you'll run out of bullets and we'll beat you to death, basically, before you kill all of us. And and I think that says something about who these guys are. You know, they, mm-hmm. they're not going to be told to do it, but if they decide to, it's because they know it's the right thing to do. And as you said, it might be because of patriotism to the party, or it could be that they realize that this is going to potentially contaminate all the drinking water for 50 million people and that they're the only guys that can do this, that they know how to do what needs to be done. That foreman is a smart guy. Like as soon as he sits down, I guess, in like the little trailer to kind of go over the situation, he knows right away how much time it's going to take, how many men he'll need in the time frame he has, how deep he's got to dig. Like he just, he gets it. He knows the task at hand. And in a way, he's kind of a hero. You can almost tell in that opening scene that he knows he's going to be exposing his men, which at first is like 100, but then he says he's going to need 400 men to actually pull this off in the time frame that they have. And he knows that this is not going to go well for them. And it's so hot, apparently, underneath underneath the reactor where they're digging. It's like the equivalent of like 120 degrees or something like that. It's insane. That's crazy. 122 degrees Fahrenheit. How are you working like with no ventilation, digging by hand? They they can't use any heavy machinery. They're just using shovels and like wheeling carts of earth out on little trolleys. It's just like the most insane task to do. But this is what these guys do and they're doing it. Yeah. What did you think of the section of the episode that really focused on... Um, I would call it the investigative reporting by uh, by Kamuk, who goes mm. to the the hospital to interview all the folks. She finds out that, uh, as confirmed by two or three of the workers, that there was a button that was pressed. The AZ five button was pressed, and the reactor exploded. Or at that moment, yeah, like at that that's moment, yeah, right. Which could have been a coincidence, you know, it could be like at the moment they tried to press that button, which I guess is a button that's sort of like a some kind of fail safe, some kind of shutdown emergency button. I think that what was it the it went from 200 to 400 in a matter of a few seconds. So they they got nervous and hit that button, which I guess was supposed to prevent a catastrophe. Uh, you know, prevent a catastrophe and that's when the explosion occurred so either and this is what we don't know right we don't know fully but this is what they uncover either pressing that button caused the explosion or somehow the explosion occurred at almost the exact moment that they pressed the button so I will, i'll go on record at, yeah. and i have not listened to the chernobyl podcast because i don't want to be influenced 
once we finish this series, I'm, I'm going to go yeah, and just kind of de- plow through check all five episodes. Too. But I believe at some point in the first episode, because it's titled one, two, three, four, five, that mm-hmm. number is very significant, not just that it's oh one, two, three, four, five. I think it has something to do with that button being pressed. Mm-hmm. And so watching this episode, we're left with the question, what did happen? And right. she doesn't have the answers, but she's going to go back. She plans to go back. And this is what sort of sobering is. She tells Legasov, I'll go back and I'll get more answers. And he's like, it's too late. They're already dead. Yeah. And what we see near the very end is probably one of the most visceral scenes, which is just like everything else that should feel romanticized and like elaborate in terms of music and beautiful, it's played for functionality only. It's the funeral. You have, yeah. I believe it's Vasily and four others, four of the other firemen that have died. They're put in, I think they're lead coffins. They're not the traditional wooden coffins. Yeah, I, I looked it up and it, it was actually, um, it, they were zinc caskets that they were buried in. I'm not quite sure why zinc, but that's what they were buried in. And then that was, of course, as I think you were going to say, covered in concrete. So Yes. Wow. To think about as the wife of one of these people uh, or yeah. as a loved one and to look at the fact that they are not human beings. These are not humans that are being buried. Like even when someone is burned to death or mutilated or I'm not going to try to get too too gross, but the death of someone by something that would do something to their body that is not just old age or natural right. causes, even they are buried in a nice wooden box cremated or whatever. Right. These guys, as much as their loved ones want to see them buried and celebrated or honored, they're not human. In fact, at some point, I think one of the nurses tells Vasily's wife, that's not your husband. He's no longer your husband. And to think about the fact that these nurses had to look at these men as a problem, not as a life worth saving. And it's not their choice. It's not like they're saying, nah, they're not worth it. They've gone beyond a place where they cannot be saved. And now they're a liability to the people around them. And that scene, that funeral scene, just really expresses this idea that there's a reluctant observation or a, re- or a reluctant kind of decision that we can't treat these bodies as humans anymore. They are, they are liabilities. They are collateral damage that even in death are problematic. And that's right. got to be incredibly difficult to think about a loved one as a loved one to you but as a carcass or as a potential exposure to radiation to everyone else. I mean, that just broke my heart watching that. I know, I know. And yeah, they're just so radioactive that they're dangerous to be around. These are not people that can be saved, unfortunately. All they can really do for them is try to make them comfortable for as long as possible. They even mentioned at one point that at a certain point in the process, they can't even give them morphine anymore. The body won't accept it. So then it's almost like they're just dying in agony. So I just don't know if there's no hope, why make them suffer? You know, why not just sort of help them pass peacefully? Because this is not a way you want to go. Like It's like the worst way a person could go. And I'm assuming that even if you were to cremate them, that the ashes would still be radioactive, which is why they they couldn't even do that, which, you know, like the old funeral pyres sort of burn them, you know, but 
even that I'm assuming would cause radioactive ash to go up in the in the air. And so this clearly was the only real secure option to get these radioactive bodies into the earth. And again, the weird thing being that, you know, hundreds of years from now, if someone were to dig them up, like they will still be radioactive. It's just so hard to believe. This whole thread of the episode is just really hard to watch. And just, it really makes you just feel for all these people because it's um, just brutal. And the makeup is very believable. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the KGB angle and the, the politics behind that? This was uh, especially the the sort of uh, head of the KGB that they interact with in the kind of briefing towards the end of the episode. Like this guy, first of all, I'll just say that almost nobody expresses any emotion in the Soviet Union, <laughs> but especially this guy. This guy is like, yeah, he's he's perfect for the job. Because just looking at him, you're like, what does he know about me? What does he have on me? But that conversation they have in the hallway was really just insane because the head of the KGB talks about how everyone is followed. Even I'm followed. Even the people that follow me are followed. And I I thought that was just like such an insane way to run your country, like to to assume that everybody is up to something or everybody could potentially be a threat or could be a liability and therefore you have to essentially track and monitor everybody like this is truly big brother this is you know what george orwell was talking about this is the society they live in well and it's interesting to know that because at one point legasov and sherbina are talking they're just kind of casually walking through one of the streets (laughs) dogs are following them and it's in one of those moments this episode is also really great about it doing more explaining to mm-hmm. to us. Uh, I think at one point, Legosov is explaining to Sherbina, you know, what happens? What's the lifespan of all this? And so he's essentially describing what's happened to Vasily, where you'll get the initial exposure, the red, like your sunburned, and then it'll sort of go dormant for a few days, and you'll look like you're on the road to recovery, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse, and that's, of course, what we see. But in that, Legosov looks, he says, who are those people? And he confirms, you know, they're KGB, they've been following us. And he says something about when we see them out in the open, it's because they want us to know that they're following us. And it's so matter of fact that that's part of Russian culture or Soviet culture, this idea that this is just who we are. But it makes me think as a Westerner, as an American, that's absurd, but it's really not. I mean, if you look at China, I mean, they've got the internet on lockdown. I mean, you have to be incredibly careful of what websites you go to because it's a socialist country. It's very much a a communistly driven government where the good of the people, equality, what we'd see as socialism, we think it's just ridiculous. Capitalism cannot reign supreme. This is the life that is normal for not only the commoners, but also for the politicians. The fact that you get that line that the head of the KGB, he's being followed too, I think it's all about containing the message and making right. sure that the message stays consistent. And that's something else that we see in this episode is the fact that when Sherbina is briefing Gorbachev near the end of the episode, mm-hmm. he says something about, he, he basically gives the short-term victory update, but he, he includes protecting the reputation of the USSR. Like, this is a big deal. Yeah. In case we had forgotten, the reputation of the USSR 
is incredibly important. In fact, early, there's a great visual before Gorbachev gets the call from Shabina saying, here's what we need, here's the problem. He's looking at all these papers from all over the, the world, stuff from the USA, and you have headlines like, USSR in trouble, needs help from anywhere it can get. I gotta believe that Gorbachev's going, oh my gosh, we look like weak people. We look like right. a weak nation. And therefore, he looks weak. Clearly, that's all he's concerned about. And I think as a whole, this whole, everybody around this table, they clearly care more about the appearance of Russia, well, of the Soviet Union being strong and capable and that they're, everything's under control, that that's more important than a few hundred deaths. You know, those people are expendable. That's for the good of the party, as long as they can show the world that everything is under control and there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. And that's when this follow-up by Legasov at that committee meeting takes place that I start thinking <laughs> Gorbachev's like, we're in trouble for everything yeah. he's saying. He calls it the war that must begin, which I thought was very fitting language because mm -hmm. we're in the midst of the Cold War. They understand that language as politicians. He says that the entire region must be evacuated. All the animals must be destroyed. And I'm just going to say this on the record. So anybody listening as a dog lover, I know in the next episode that there is going to be an extermination of dogs. I've got the timestamps and I'm going to skip them. I'm going to just assume that nothing important is said in this particular timestamp of minutes. You know this happens in the next episode? I do know this happens. Okay. It's not a All spoiler. Right. I mean, this is what had got to happen. Okay. In fact, the writer I didn't writer know if they were going to show it. Yeah. I think they do. And so as a, as a dog Got lover, okay. I will not be watching that. So I'm just, yeah, just saying it on the record that there will be parts of this episode that I do not watch. Okay. But he says there will be deaths. And he refers to thousands, perhaps tens of thousands. Right. I love Gorbachev's face here because it's like he's saying, I don't know what to do. I have to accept this. But how can I accept this? It's like he doesn't have any answers. Right. You cannot contain the message of this. Like you can't mm -hmm. spin this in a way that's going to be like, we're good. USSR right. was still strong, even though we had to basically evacuate the entire country or the entire Soviet Union because of this. Right. And I really think that this episode in that sort of update is telling us, okay, it's about to get really, really bad if it hasn't gotten bad already in these next two episodes. And so if I'm excited air quotes about anything, in the next couple episodes, it's how much worse can it get and how are they going to resolve it? Are we going to skip ahead like 30 years and say, here's where all the people are now? I right. kind of hope so because we need some kind of bright spot in all this. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also inclined to think as a writer creator, this, this guy wants us to sort of live in this tension, live in this depression, yeah. live in this solitude with all these people. So I'm inclined to believe that that's not going to happen, that we're going to just sort of go, Okay, whatever happens, happens. Yeah, we're going to see, I think, we're, we're going to witness this war taking place. And we even see at beginning, they talk about needing, I think, 750,000 men to do what's necessary to sort of contain this disaster. And they yeah. even have, have like, a, like a draft day. like a draft day. day. Yeah. yeah. Where yeah. men are just lining up and you know, volunteering. And clearly, I mean, I'm sure some of them will have some exposure. They're not going to be as exposed as the men who were there during the initial accident. But clearly, some of them will be going 
into that town, gathering up animals, gathering up you know anything that needs to be removed. It's going to be a huge undertaking. And at, le- at the very least, though, I feel like Gorbachev and everybody is finally accepting the reality of the situation and no longer kind of playing these games, at least internally. Maybe they're not communicating widely outside of that room what's really happening, but I think they're finally at a point where they're like, yeah, this is what we have to do. And we have to listen to the scientists now. We, we can't cover this up anymore. There's no way, there's no way around this. It is what it is, basically. The this, this science is real, that this is a radioactive disaster, and if we don't do all the things on this list, it's just going to be far worse for, yeah. for the Soviet Union. So there is that. I think it's, I, I'm predicting that what we're going to see is this sort of new war beginning for them to sort of contain this problem, and then the investigation continuing as well as to why it happened to try to get to the bottom of what actually happened that triggered this. And as they say, how do we prevent this from ever happening again? That's the key to this investigation is not just knowing why, but knowing how to prevent a similar disaster from ever occurring. Yeah. One final thought from me is this idea that there's a lot of weariness that we're starting to feel in Mm -hmm. this. I mean, yes, it's very depressing to begin with, considering the disaster is what we start with. But from individual fronts, we start to see that weariness, not necessarily despair that, oh, this will never get fixed. But as we talked about earlier, the new reality that will be lived in, this idea that the home that I once knew as a Pripyat citizen, I will never be able to come back to. But even on a more personal level, there's a conversation, I think it's with... um, Legasov and with uh, Kamyuk, the Belarus scientist, after she's been arrested, which is just Mm -hmm. insane. By the KGB, yeah. By the KGB. And he says, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to Mm -hmm. stop. I feel that with him. I feel like he is providing great information and they're making, for the most part, good decisions. It's not like they're trying and failing. I mean, everything that they're doing is working. It's just, it's not letting them go back to where they were. So right. They're never going to go back to their lives before. Like they, I think neither of them want to be doing this anymore after everything they've been through. But if right. they don't do it, who will, as I mentioned earlier? Mm-hmm. And also, they are both scientists. And I think at the heart of a scientist, they need to know what happened. They, they yes. can't have experienced everything that they've experienced and or been exposed to radiation and to not have that understanding, to not end their life not knowing what caused this? Was it preventable? Is someone responsible? Was it sabotage? Was it, you know, who knows, right? They have to figure this out. I think their duty is coming from a sense of scientific duty, like that we have to know mm-hmm. what caused this. Whereas the the members of the party, I think it's coming from a different place. It's coming from that sort of patriotic responsibility or to your fellow man. If you know that there's bigger dangers, potentially, like all of the water for 50 million people becoming contaminated. I mean, if you're a coal worker and you know that you can do something to prevent that type of devastation from occurring, would you do it? That's the kind right. of question that I think this episode asks of of all of us. I think these guys clearly, I'm sure they have families. I'm sure they they understand the the ramifications for this. But again, if they don't do it, who will? I think that's what it comes down to. And the old Spock, the good of the many outweighs the good of the one or the few. You know, right. I think that's mm-hmm. that's at the heart of this. And that might be at the heart of sort of the whole Soviet mentality as well, that it's 
what's best for the party, like what's best for mm-hmm. your country, not what's best for you. And that's spun in such a positive way. But of course, we know right. in the idea of socialism that that doesn't work because right. of the, the natural inequality of people. Yeah. yeah, right. It sounds good on paper, but doesn't work in sort of practical applications. Yeah. One final thought from me. I, I want to sure. throw some love at Sherbina. And there's a little bit of a softness that we see in this episode, at least I saw it, where he's having a conversation with Legasov at some point. I mean, they talk a lot in this episode. He says, I know the job isn't over, but it's the beginning of the end. So he's talking about the successes they've had. I think it's important important to be able to celebrate the small things, to be able to recognize the victories that, that come even in the midst of the overall disaster. Like Legasov is the, he's the, he's the negative Nancy of the, of the, of the two. And, and rightly so. I mean, he is giving real updates, scientifically speaking, that the war is about to begin. Like we've fought the battle. But I do think it's important to sit in those moments and say, look what we've done. We've put the fire out. We have stopped the water from being contaminated. We have um, these men that are doing all they can in their nude glory to <laughs> put this, um, what was it, uh, the heat exchanger, yeah. that's what it was. And he's the voice that recognizes that. And he's not just doing it at the committee meeting to say, look what all we've done. I mean, I really mm-hmm. think he is trying to provide optimism in that look. If we're capable of accomplishing these three things, then I'm optimistic to think that Maybe we don't have to evacuate as big of an area as you say. Maybe there's ways that we can prevent having to you know, shoot dogs or kill people or whatever because they're contaminated. I mean, that's not realistic because of what Legasov rightly says. But I do think that there's value in his perspective in that it's important for us to pause and say, Let's be grateful. <laughs> let's, let's have some gratitude for the things mm-hmm. that we have accomplished. Not sit on our laurels. But to at least say we've overcome, which means we have the capacity to continue to do so. So right. I, I like that about him. I like that in that moment, at least, maybe he'll go back on it and just be political, you know, gobbledygook or whatever. In that moment, I think I really align myself with, with that perspective that he understands it's important to take a breath, celebrate, and then move forward. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think we all need in a stressful situation, need to take breaks, celebrate small victories. It keeps your morale up, especially if you're commanding people. If you're in charge of people who need to complete a task, you have to keep that morale up. You have to get a sense that you're making progress and that you've actually achieved something. Because if you don't, then that's when sort of the doom and gloom sets in and you start to feel like it's hopeless and there's no way, this is such a daunting task. There's no way we can figure this out. There's no way we can deal with this. So I think you do, as you said, need to celebrate those small victories and and sort of show yourself almost, like trick yourself into believing that we're getting there. You know, even if we've got a huge road ahead of us, we're making key progress here and we can keep doing it. We just have to take it one day at a time, as they say. <laughs> and I think That's just how we are. That's how we're wired as human beings. We need to break up monumental tasks into small, digestible chunks that we can check off the list and feel a sense of accomplishment that we've completed. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. Great way to put it. Well, that will wrap up this episode of an original series. 
Adam, what's coming up next? Uh, episode four, or we're we're past the midpoint now. Two more two more episodes left. It's called the happiness of all mankind, which is I bet that's ironic. I'm not saying yeah. that's ironic. <laughs> yeah, it's not actual happiness. It's always the mystery of the title of an episode that we have to uncover. Yeah, I'm gonna take happy pills afterwards just to make sure, <laughs> or even maybe even before to make sure that's uh, that's gonna make me feel better. <laughs> I think this will be. Say, I think we're gonna get a really happy episode. I think you know all the characters will be dancing to Footloose, and it'll just. <laughs> <laughs> Because you got to cut loose, foot loose. Yeah. Kick off your Sunday shoes. Jeez, Louise. Anyway. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. I'm going to hold tight to that one. (laughs) With special guest star Kevin Bacon. That's right. (laughs) He makes a cameo in this in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. (laughs) He'll digitally de aged because he would have, you know, been fresh off of foot loose at this point in time. Let's dance <laughs> in the radioactive debris. <laughs> no. Well, that'll do it for us. Thank you all for tuning in and joining this conversation. I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here.